Section 2 of Billy Budd by Herman Melville. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Scientific Methodist. Chapter 2 Though our new-made Fort Topman was well received in the top and on the gun decks, hardly here was he that cynosure he had previously been among those minor ships' companies of the merchant marine, with which companies only had he hitherto consorted. He was young, and despite his all but fully developed frame, in aspect looked even younger than he really was. This was owing to a lingering adolescent expression in the as-yet smooth face, all but feminine in purity of natural complexion, but where, thanks to his sea-going, the lily was quite suppressed, and the rose had some ado visibly to flush through the tan. To one essentially such a novice in the complexities of factitious life, the abrupt transition from his former and simpler sphere to the ampler and more knowing world of a great warship, this might well have abashed him had there been any conceit or vanity in his composition. Among her miscellaneous multitude, the indomitable mustered several individuals who, however inferior in grade, were of no common natural stamp, sailors more signally susceptible of that air which continuous martial discipline and repeated presence in battle can in some degree impart even to the average man. As the handsome sailor, Billy Budd's position aboard the 74 was something analogous to that of a rustic beauty transplanted from the provinces and brought into competition with the high-born dames of the court. But this change of circumstances he scarce noted. As little did he observe that something about him provoked an ambiguous smile in one or two harder faces among the blue jackets. Nor less unaware was he of the peculiar favorable effect his person and demeanor had upon the more intelligent gentlemen of the quarter-deck. Nor could this well have been otherwise. Cast in a mold peculiar to the finest physical examples of those Englishmen in whom the Saxon strain would seem not at all to partake of any Norman or other admixture, he showed in face that humane look of reposeful good nature which the Greek sculptor in some instances gave to his heroic strongman Hercules. But this again was subtly modified by another and pervasive quality, the ear, small and shapely, the arch of the foot, the curve in mouth and nostril. Even the indurated hand dyed to the orange tawny of the toucan's bill, a hand-telling of the halyards and tar-buckets. But above all, something in the mobile expression, and every chance attitude and movement, something suggestive of a mother eminently favored by love and the graces. All this strangely indicated a lineage in direct contradiction to his lot. The mysteriousness here became less mysterious through a matter-of-fact elicited when Billy at the capstan was being formally mustered into the service. Asked by the officer, a small, brisk little gentleman, as it chanced, among other questions, his place of birth, he replied, "'Please, sir, I don't know.' "'Don't know where you were born? Who was your father?' "'God knows, sir.' Struck by the straightforward simplicity of these replies, the officer next asked, do you know anything about your beginning? No, sir, but I have heard that I was found in a pretty silk-lined basket hanging one morning from the knocker of a good man's door in Bristol. Found, say you? Well, throwing back his head and looking up and down the new recruit, well, it turns out to have been a pretty good find. Hope they'll find some more like you, my man. The fleet sadly needs them. Yes, Billy Bud was a foundling, a presumable by-blow, and evidently no ignoble one. 
noble descent was as evident in him as in a blood horse. For the rest, with little or no sharpness of faculty or any trace of the wisdom of the serpent, nor yet quite a dove, he possessed a certain degree of intelligence along with the unconventional rectitude of a sound human creature, one to whom not yet has been proffered the questionable apple of knowledge. He was illiterate, he could not read, but he could sing, and like the illiterate Nightingale was sometimes the composer of his own song. Of self-consciousness he seemed to have little or none, or about as much as we may reasonably impute to a dog of St. Bernard's breed. Habitually being with the elements, and knowing little more of the land than as a beach, or rather that portion of the terraqueous globe providentially set apart for dance-houses, doxies, and tapsters, in short, what sailors call a fiddler's green, his simple nature remained unsophisticated by those moral obliquities which are not in every case incomparable with that manufacturable thing known as respectability. But are sailor frequenters of fiddler's greens without vices? No, but less often than the landsmen do their vices, so-called, partake of crookedness of heart, seeming less to proceed from viciousness than exuberance of vitality after long restraint, frank manifestations in accordance with natural law. By his original constitution, aided by the cooperating influences of his lot, Billy in many respects was little more than a sort of upright barbarian, much such, perhaps, as Adam presumably might have been ere the urbane serpent wriggled himself into his company. And here be it submitted that, apparently going to corroborate the doctrine of man's fall, a doctrine now popularly ignored, it is observable that where certain virtues, pristine and unadulterate, peculiarly characterize anybody in the external uniform of civilization, they will upon scrutiny seem not to be derived from custom or convention, but rather to be out of keeping with these, as if indeed exceptionally transmitted from a period prior to Cain's city and citified man. The character marked by such qualities has to an unvitiated taste an untampered with flavor like that of berries, while the man thoroughly civilized, even in a fair specimen of the breed, has to the same moral palate a questionable smack as of a compounded wine. To any stray inheritor of these primitive qualities found, like Caspar Hauser, wandering dazed in any Christian capital of our time, the poet's famous invocation, near two thousand years ago, of the good rustic out of his latitude in the Rome of the Caesars, still appropriately holds. Faithful in word and thought, what hast thee, Fabian, to the city brought? Though our handsome sailor had as much of masculine beauty as one can expect anywhere to see, nevertheless, like the beautiful woman in one of Hawthorne's minor tales, there was just one thing amiss in him. No visible blemish, indeed, as with the lady, no, but an occasional liability to a vocal defect. Though in the hour of elemental uproar or peril he was everything that a sailor should be, yet under sudden provocation of strong heart-feeling his voice, otherwise singularly musical, as if expressive of the harmony within, was apt to develop an organic hesitancy, in fact, more or less of a stutter, or even worse. In this particular, Billy was a striking instance that the arch-interpreter, the envious marplot of Eden, still has more or less to do with every human consignment to this planet of Earth. In every case, one way or another, he is sure to slip in his little card, as much as to remind us, I, too, have a hand here.
The avowal of such an imperfection in the handsome sailor should be evidence not alone that he is not presented as a conventional hero, but also that the story in which he is the main figure is no romance. Chapter 3 At the time of Billy Budd's arbitrary enlistment into the Indomitable, that ship was on her way to join the Mediterranean fleet. No long time elapsed before the junction was effected. As one of that fleet, the 74 participated in its movements, though at times on account of her superior sailing qualities, in the absence of frigates, dispatched on separate duty as a scout, and at times on less temporary service. But with all this the story has little concernment, restricted as it is to the inner life of one particular ship and the career of an individual sailor. It was the summer of 1797. In the April of that year had occurred the commotion at Spithead, followed in May by a second and yet more serious outbreak in the fleet at the Nore. The latter is known, and without exaggeration in the epithet, as the Great Mutiny. It was indeed a demonstration more menacing to England than the contemporary manifestos and conquering and proselytizing armies of the French Directory. To the Empire, the Norm Mutiny was what a strike in the fire brigade would be to London threatened by General Arson. In a crisis, when the kingdom might well have anticipated the famous signal that some years later published along the naval line of battle what it was that upon occasion England expected of Englishmen, that was the time when at the mastheads of the three deckers and seventy-fours moored in her own roadstead, a fleet, the right arm of a power then all but the sole free conservative one of the old world, the Blue Jackets, to be numbered by thousands, ran up with hurrahs the British colors with the Union and cross wiped out, by that cancellation transmuting the flag of founded law and freedom defined into the enemy's red meteor of unbridled and unbounded revolt. Reasonable discontent growing out of practical grievances in the fleet had been ignited into irrational combustion as by live cinders blown across the channel from France in flames. The event converted into irony for a time those spirited strains of Dibden, as a songwriter no mean auxiliary to the English government at this European conjuncture, strains celebrating, among other things, the patriotic devotion of the British tar. And as for my life, tis the king's. Such an episode in the island's grand naval story her naval historians naturally abridge. One of them, G.P.R. James, candidly acknowledging that fain would he pass it over did not impartiality forbid fastidiousness. And yet his mention is less a narration than a reference, having to do hardly at all with details. Nor are these readily to be found in the libraries. Like some other events in every age befalling states everywhere, including America, the Great Mutiny was of such character that national pride along with views of policy would fain shade it off into the historical background. Such events cannot be ignored, but there is a considerate way of historically treating them. If a well-constituted individual refrains from blazoning aught amiss or calamitous in his family, a nation in the like circumstance may without reproach be equally discreet. Though, after parleyings between government and the ringleaders, and concessions by the former as to some glaring abuses, the first uprising, that at Spithead, with difficulty was put down, or matters for a time pacified. 
Yet at the Nore, the unforeseen renewal of insurrection on a yet larger scale, and emphasized in the conferences that ensued by demands deemed by the authorities not only inadmissible but aggressively insolent, indicated, if the red flag did not sufficiently do so, what was the spirit animating the men. Final suppression, however, there was, but only made possible perhaps by the unswerving loyalty of the Marine Corps and a voluntary resumption of loyalty among influential sections of the crews. To some extent, the Norm mutiny may be regarded as analogous to the distempering eruption of contagious fever in a frame constitutionally sound, and which anon throws it off. At all events, among these thousands of mutineers were some of the Tars who not so very long afterwards, whether wholly prompted thereto by patriotism or pugnacious instinct, or by both, helped to win a coronet for Nelson at the Nile, and the naval crown of crowns for him at Trafalgar. To the mutineers those battles, and especially Trafalgar, were a plenary absolution, and a grand one, for that which goes to make up scenic naval display is heroic magnificence in arms. Those battles, especially Trafalgar, stand unmatched in human annals. Chapter 4. Concerning the Greatest Sailor Since the World Began. Tennyson. In this matter of writing, resolve as one may to keep to the main road, some bypaths have an enticement not readily to be withstood. Beckoned by the genius of Nelson, I am going to err into such a bypath. If the reader will keep me company, I shall be glad. At the least, we can promise ourselves that pleasure which is wickedly said to be in sinning, for a literary sin the divergence will be. Very likely, it is no new remark that the inventions of our time have at last brought about a change in sea warfare in degree corresponding to the revolution in all warfare affected by the original introduction from China into Europe of gunpowder. The first European firearm, a clumsy contrivance, was, as is well known, scouted by no few of the knights as a base implement, good enough peradventure for weavers too craven to stand up crossing steel with steel in frank fight. But, as a shore knightly valor, though shorn of its blazonry, did not cease with the knights, neither on the seas, though nowadays, in encounters there, a certain kind of displayed gallantry be fallen out of date as hardly applicable under changed circumstances, did the nobler qualities of such naval magnates as Don John of Austria, Doria, Van Tromp, Jean Bart, the long line of British admirals and the American decaders of 1812 become obsolete with their wooden walls. Nevertheless, to anybody who can hold the present at its worth without being inappreciative of the past, it may be forgiven if to such an one the solitary old hulk at Portsmouth, Nelson's victory, seems to float there, not alone as the decaying monument of a fame incorruptible, but also as a poetic reproach softened by its picturesqueness to the monitors and yet mightier hulls of the European ironclads. And this not altogether because such craft are unsightly, unavoidably lacking the symmetry and grand lines of the old battleships, but equally for other reasons. There are some, perhaps, who, while not altogether inaccessible to that poetic reproach just alluded to, may yet on behalf of the new order be disposed to parry it, and this to the extent of iconoclasm, if need be. For example, prompted by the sight of the star inserted in the victory's deck designating the spot where the great sailor fell, 
These martial utilitarians may suggest considerations implying that Nelson's ornate publication of his person in battle was not only unnecessary, but not military, nay, savored of foolhardiness and vanity. They may add, too, that at Trafalgar it was in effect nothing less than a challenge to death, and death came, and that but for his bravado the victorious admiral might possibly have survived the battle, and so, instead of having his sagacious dying injunctions overruled by his immediate successor in command, he himself, when the contest was decided, might have brought his shattered fleet to anchor, a proceeding which might have averted the deplorable loss of life by shipwreck in the elemental tempest that followed the martial one. Well, should we set aside the more than disputable point whether for various reasons it was possible to anchor the fleet, then plausibly enough the Bethamites of war may urge the above. But, he might have been, is but boggy ground to build on, and certainly in foresight as to the larger issue of an encounter, and anxious preparations for it, buoying the deadly way and mapping it out as at Copenhagen, few commanders have been so painstakingly circumspect as this reckless declarer of his person in fight. Personal prudence, even when dictated by quite other than selfish considerations, is surely no special virtue in a military man, while an excessive love of glory, exercising to the uttermost the honest, heartfelt sense of duty, is the first. If the name Wellington is not so much of a trumpet to the blood as the simpler name Nelson, the reason for this may perhaps be inferred from the above. Alfred, in his funeral ode on the victor of Waterloo, ventures not to call him the greatest soldier of all time, though in the same ode he invokes Nelson as the greatest sailor since the world began. At Trafalgar, Nelson, on the brink of opening the fight, sat down and wrote his last brief will and testament. If under the presentment of the most magnificent of all victories, to be crowned by his own glorious death, a sort of priestly motive led him to dress his person in the jeweled vouchers of his own shining deeds, if thus to have adorned himself for the altar and the sacrifice were indeed vainglory, then affectation and fustian is each truly heroic line in the great epics and dramas, since in such lines the poet but embodies in verse those exaltations of sentiment that a nature like Nelson, the opportunity being given, vitalizes into acts. End of section two. Recording by Scientific Methodist.